Hollywood, South Carolina is a spot on the map at the intersection of highways 165 and 162. This is what they call God's country. The rural community of some 5,000 continues to grow, but at a much slower pace than the Charleston metro area just up Highway 17. Economically, it's a very diverse population. Hollywood is home to horse farms, produce farms, and Boogie's Barbecue. You can buy four acres of land on Cherry Hill Road for about 85 grand or a double wide on less than an acre for about 120,000. Drive 10 minutes further down the road and you'll find a 4,000 square foot home for sale for just under three quarters of a million. And they've listed a six bedroom, six bath place for about $3 million. Even with all that economic diversity, the new mayor of Hollywood, South Carolina says they all get along just fine. He's a busy man, but Savannah J from Star 99.7 caught up with him. I love Hollywood. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Uh, grew up there, born there, and, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I'm, I'm truly committed to my town. Mr. Dunmire, tell me about how long you've been the mayor of Hollywood, please. Uh, just around about 100 days now. And what made you run for the mayor's position? Well, you know, I served on the council for about 20 years seen a lot that I wanted to do in the town. And, and the reason for that is, you know, my grandmother, my grand aunt, um, they, they got me started a long time ago. And they always said you can work better from the inside than the outside because you can hear it, you can take it back, and then you can get it done. And if you don't listen to the people, then things not going to get done. So I started listening to the seniors talk about our, our veterans. Uh, we're going to have our first annual veterans breakfast at our Wide Awake Park. 10 o'clock on November the 11th, and uh, you're invited to come. If there are people that want to volunteer to help out, the local people that live there, what can they do to help with that process? Well, I, I start with the word uh, transparency. Um, I visit the barber shops, I visit the church, I visit the post office, I visit the hardware store, and I, and I go in the community and I say, hey, look, come to the town. Um, because we have an outstanding staff, call the town, uh, 843 843- Eight eight nine three two two two. Call the town. Come by the town. Let the staff know they're doing a great job. And then at that time, they can share with us what they're thinking. And then we just continue to better the town. Walk me through the mayor's office. Once I hit the door, what am I going to be greeted with? Oh, gosh. When you walk into the town of Hollywood, uh, you're going to be greeted with a smile. Tammy Haynes, uh, she'll receive you, uh, offer assistance on, on what they come for. You know, we've got our town clerk treasurer, Ms. Ty White. We've got our administrator, uh, Ms. Ms. Walker, our planner. Mr. DeHaven. Uh, we've got our senior coordinator, which is us, Ms. Gibson. I get an opportunity. I grab them and I walk them around the town. They walk in smiling. They're going to walk up with a bigger smile. We are, we're having a good time. Our job is to serve. Mayor Dunmire, if you could say one more thing to the people of Hollywood and the surrounding areas, what would you say? I would say to the people, what you see is what you get. And you can count on the town of Hollywood because we are one family. And as he mentioned, they will have a veteran's breakfast tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. A lot of activities around the Lowcountry. North Charleston has one of the largest Veterans Day ceremonies in the nation. Also down in Walterboro, they will have a Veterans Day celebration as well. And if you can't make it to any of those official celebrations, just say thanks to the veteran in your office or on your street. Because a lot of these servicemen and women are finding out that the fight continues when they get home talking about PTSD. And with more on that from the InfoTrack studio, here's Ray Mackey. 
We're talking with Brian Fleming. He served as a U.S. Army Infantry Sergeant in Afghanistan and is now the co-author of a book called Redeployed, How Combat Veterans Can Fight the Battle Within and Win the War at Home. Brian, we read about the high suicide rate for veterans, and most everyone has at least heard of post-traumatic stress disorder. How serious of a problem is all of this today? Well, according to a lot of the most recent estimates from the Department of Veteran Affairs, they're saying that the suicide rate among male veterans under the age of 30 rose by 44% between 2009 and 2011. And overall, two young veterans, men or women, and 22 veterans of all ages take their own lives every single day. We're trained to fight and win wars and to fight well and to do well, and we do extremely well when we do. But nobody trains us or prepares us in a way that we feel is necessary, my co-author and I, that we're equipped and educated to the extent that we can effectively fight and win this battle and this war we fight at home after returning home from combat within our families and our personal lives. And he and I both combat veterans from Afghanistan. I was combat wounded, blown up twice, second time by a suicide bomber who exploded three feet away from me in Kandahar. Chad, my co-author, he was a Force Recon Marine. He did some work with SOCOM over in Afghanistan. He went over eight times, had serious PTSD issues, and we've worked through a lot of those things. And the book is about how we did it and the conclusions we came to that helped us. The macho mentality of many military people makes it kind of hard to ask for help, doesn't it? It does, because you never want to be that guy. You don't want to admit that you need help because there's that alpha male syndrome that we have, especially in the world of infantry where I come from. But here's what I tell guys. You know, you can talk to a guy and he says, hey, man, I'm doing great. Everything's great in life, and he puts on a good face and a good show. Yet so often you meet a guy who says that, and his wife has left him, and his kids hate him, and he's not dealing with the issues that either are or will destroy his family. Maybe they are destroying his family, yet he says he has it all together, and he says, oh, I can handle it. Well, clearly you can't handle it if he's driving everybody who cares about you away from you and is destroying your life. And so, I mean, that comes down to really not shooting yourself in the foot. It's called a gut check, a reality check, and manning up just man up to it and recognize it if it's an issue and deal with it. Do you think doctors over-prescribe medication when they're attempting to treat PTSD? (laughs) In my personal experience, absolutely. I'm not saying that's true of everybody, but in my experience, yes. From my personal time after I was injured and stories of friends of mine, I mean, I got a buddy who's 26 years old, and he was taking 23, 24 pills a day for PTSD alone. Mm. Within six months, all his teeth fell out. So, you know, now he had a whole new set of problems. It is overprescribed. I, I think a lot of doctors do care, but I think it comes down to that method of practice, that they're practicing medicine. <laughs> it's an ongoing process. You know, they'll try everything, and then they'll counteract something, and then they'll try something else, and they're just really just trying stuff, and you get in this vicious cycle of one drug counteracting another and then a third drug counteracting the second. And if you stop taking them all, who knows, based on what you're taking, you could actually die if you just stop taking it. I mean, there's a time for medicine, but it's a temporary time. You know, it wasn't meant to work and last forever. Can you describe, maybe give us some examples of some of the things that do work other than medicine, maybe in your case or in cases that you've been aware of? Oh, absolutely. We know the same chemicals in your brain that are released to make you feel good the oxytocin, the serotonin, the chemicals that your brain naturally produces and releases that make you feel good. There are other ways to get those released into your body without taking a pill that's going to be accompanied with side effects. For example, I know when I ride motorcycles, I relax. If I'm stressed, I go on a bike ride because it relaxes me. My co-author, he's a third-degree black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's a cage fighter. He has three or four Gracie jiu-jitsu gyms all over the country, and he'll get in there 
and he'll roll around and do MMA stuff with guys because it's a physical workout and it releases all those things and he feels better after doing that. And so that's one way that I do it. That's one way that he does it. Physical activity is great. Being involved in like jujitsu, that's one of his primary classes that he teaches for veterans for free in many cases to get them involved in that because it's healing through jujitsu. Brian, if I am a family member and I have a loved one, maybe a husband, wife, son, daughter who's returning from combat, is there anything that I can do to help to ease that transition? Be there for them. Sometimes they'll lash out because, you know, a situation reminds them of something or we all do that, by the way. It's not just combat veterans, but sometimes we'll see something or hear something or somebody will say something that just triggers something inside of us and just you know care about them. Love them, care about them, be there for them. Obviously, if it turns abusive, you need to get away from it. That is the case sometimes, not just with veterans, though. That's with anybody. But when you're there for somebody and you're not pressuring them to say anything, but, you know, if you can get them around other people who have been over there, too, yet they've come back from that and they've moved on productively in life, that's one of the best things I think you can do because, you know, we want to be around other guys who were over there. The only problem is some of those guys end up hanging around in bars all the time and they don't go anywhere in life. Well, who you hang around is obviously who you become like. So if you can find somebody who you think that veteran in your life would relate to, and it's a person maybe who's had some success, or they've, you can see they've moved beyond some things, and you can even reach out and say, hey, you know, I'd love to connect you with, you know, whoever it is in your life. You know, he's dealing with some stuff. And I think you could relate if you're willing. Most people are willing. It's pretty amazing the credibility of having been over there, you know, to any extent, and being able to talk to somebody, especially if you did the same job. And so that helps open up, too. Brian, final question. What do you think is the biggest misconception among the public about PTSD and today's returning vets? I think it's the lack of knowledge. The American people aren't really informed, I don't feel. I heard somebody say one time, America's not at war. The military's at war. America's at the mall. And I think that's the case in a lot of ways. But I think it's just the awareness. People think, you know, they hear about a, a shooting in a naval yard or the shooting of forehood, and all of a sudden that's all they hear, and then they go back to their lives, and all of a sudden they think, can I even talk to a veteran? Can I even talk to a military person? Or are they crazy? Are they these you know crazy whack jobs who are going to hurt somebody, that they're dangerous? And that's a big part of what I do, just to try and help raise that awareness, because I tell you, you get veterans on your side, on your team, whether it's in your organization or in your business, you get that man or woman steered, aimed in the right direction, they can be one of the greatest assets you have ever crossed because they know how to fight and they know how to win. And they have a desire to. They've had to do it to survive, literally. Brian Fleming, combat veteran and the co-author of a book called Redeployed, How Combat Veterans Can Fight the Battle Within and Win the War at Home. Brian, do you have a website where people can learn more? Yes, my website is simple. It's blownupguy.com. And if you can't remember it, just remember I'm one of those guys who got blown up. So it's blownupguy.com. Another group who has to deal with the stress of PTSD when the veterans return home is the military family. Once again, here's Ray Mackey talking with one who knows. Our guest is Nanette Sagastumi. She's the wife of a Vietnam veteran, the mother of an Iraq war veteran, and now the author of We Also Serve, which talks about her family's experiences during the war in Iraq. First of all, I'd like to ask about the title of your book, We Also Serve. I'm assuming that is alluding to the fact that when someone joins the military, basically their family joins too. Yes, it actually alludes way back to one of the sonnets that says, they also serve who stand and wait. So that's where that comes from. It suggests that when someone serves, the family is 
so deeply involved with the service and has to make many sacrifices. Even though they never signed up to be in the service, they are, in fact, serving their country as well. Do you think someone who has never had a family member serving in a war zone can truly relate or understand the kind of position your family has been in? I think it's harder because I think even myself, when my son first was in the Marine Corps and graduating from boot camp just four days before 9-11 happened, I started a family support group for military families. And even then, I thought watching some of these other parents go through it, I thought I had a pretty good idea of what I could expect. And I'm sure I had a better idea than many people. But nonetheless, you are never prepared until it happens to you. You really do not have a sense of it as fully. But my hope is that this book not only is helpful for other parents, the persons who are deployed, but it is also, I think, very helpful for people who do not know anyone who has served. About 99% of Americans do not serve. So I think since those who are in the military are doing it for us, that it is helpful for people to really know what they are going through and what their family is going through. I think you have a rather unusual perspective because your husband served in Vietnam and your son served in Iraq. How has that experience changed between Vietnam and Iraq in terms of having a loved one in a war zone? I think now people are a little bit more open to being compassionate towards those who serve. There's always those bitter experiences that people who served in Vietnam had of not being welcomed home and then being typecast as crazy veterans. Now, I think people realize that they have erred in that approach, and so they are much more willing to embrace the warriors. Also, in terms of technology, that has also changed how a family experiences the war. Very much so. When my husband was there, um, letter was the only way of communicating. You never got a phone call. The letters would get to the family maybe two or three weeks later. And in contrast to that is now we have such instant communication that the families are aware of a lot of events as they are happening, even almost as their child in the military is experiencing it. Satellite phones and emailing so that a lot of the information can come through very quickly. That has its benefits, but what also is a negative is, for instance, my son would call at two in the morning which would be the right time for him in Iraq, but it was always our nighttime. And sometimes he'd say, well, you know, I have to go because we're going out of control in five minutes. So that left a parent knowing in real time that their child was about to go out and be in harm's way. Or another time there had been a suicide bombing of my son's platoon, and we were aware of that through the news report in the morning. We knew that seven Marines had been killed, and many of us waited all morning to see if there would be someone pulling up in front of our driveway to give us bad news. So it's very different to have such instant communication now than it was even 20 years ago. Are there things that families can do to cope during their child's deployment? Well, for different people, that would be different. But for me, I learned that I had to not watch television news. So I learned it was far better for me to just go online, get my news out of some newspaper's internet stories or radio. 
uh, was another good one. The visual is just way too powerful. So that was one thing I did. The other thing that was very helpful, and it's not always available for others, but I started a military family support group in our town, and we were able to gather other parents whose children were in the military, and most of them actually were also deployed. So just being around someone else who was going through the same thing was very helpful. I think it's also important to find something that's a soothing activity for someone and just do that every day. Make sure you nurture yourself. Our guest on InfoTrack is Nanette Sagastumi. She is the wife of a Vietnam veteran, the mother of an Iraq war veteran, and the author of a book called We Also Serve, which talks about family experiences of folks who are serving in the military. Nanette, what kinds of issues do families face when their loved one finally returns from combat? Well, there is the issue when the warrior comes back that they sometimes have trouble talking about it. For instance, our son felt he even wasn't ready to come home. He was glad to see us, but he wasn't ready to actually come home for almost two months after his return from Iraq. And in fact, he told us that it was hard for him because he was no longer our little boy, that he had seen things and had to do things. And he felt he couldn't face us with the change and so that was hard and then we had a hard time understanding it. I accepted it but not easily. We also found that we had very raw emotions. We were easily hurt so people who tended to want to pick political arguments, it was just very difficult for us to be able to engage in that. So there were a lot of strains among family members and the different opinions and the different pressures that were on our relationships they didn't totally fracture, but they were definitely strained. Nanette, what is your opinion of the support tools that are available to veterans when they return from the Veterans Administration and other means? Veterans Administration actually has a lot of options out there. Their trouble is, I think, that a lot of times, depending on where a veteran is located, their services are impacted. But there are many counseling services available. I think that's important. There are groups. My experience, however, is that a lot of the Iraq and Afghanistan vets are still feeling like they need to be with each other. One would think that with, for instance, my husband being a Vietnam vet, that that would have been ideal solution for my son. He would have somebody to talk to, somebody been through it, but what it turns out is that they feel that their situation is so unique that they don't feel like they can easily speak about their experiences to the Vietnam vets, so they actually wish to band together. But a lot of those groups are still rudimentary in their formation, and, you know, that will change as time goes on. Now, that if the average person would like to do something to help a veteran, what would you recommend? Is there something that they can do on a local level, or is it more a national level? What is out there? I think both. There's certainly some wonderful organizations, such as Wounded Warrior, for national groups, but there's also lots of things in a local vet center that could be done. There are some opportunities for volunteering. For instance, in our town, we have what are called stand-downs, and that is often organized by VA, but in the case of our town, it's actually an independent group that organizes all kinds of social services for homeless veterans during a weekend and sort of helps them 
catch up with, you know, if they need medical exams, those are given eye exams, if they need clothing or food or if they need to learn about their benefits, that is done. And a lot of this is volunteer. And that, just to kind of wrap things up, if you were going to pick one thing that the general public should know about families of the deployed but probably doesn't, what would that be? I think what they need to know is that most of those people would just prefer that if you have a question about their son, like, how is he, just ask that, but do not engage in political debate. That actually can be quite painful for the family members. They're doing all they can to keep themselves together emotionally and to begin to debate or make them doubt what their child is doing or whether it's worthwhile or whether they should be doing it or whether it's foolish choices or wasteful choices on the part of the government. All those things just add to their heartache. Just ask how the child is doing and let them tell you what they wish. Nanette Sagastumi, the author of We Also Serve, which talks about her family's experiences during the war in Iraq. Nanette, do you have a website? I do. It's wealsoserve.com. Just like in the civilian workplace, getting access to mental health services for those in the military is often not an easy thing to do. There's the fear of the stigma and the fear of damaging your career, but that is changing. A national group of civilian professionals is now offering free treatment to active duty military who need help but are afraid to ask for it. Gina Tedeschi joins us with a guest who explains how all this works. Joining us now is Dr. Howard Waitskin, Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University of New Mexico, who coordinated a study on this. Doctor, what were some of the specific reasons that service members gave for why they used the civilian services instead of military? The main reason is their feeling of double agency. That is, the military professionals inherent in their work are responsible both to the patient and to the command. And the usual parts of the Hippocratic Oath actually don't apply in some areas, in particular confidentiality. So when clients are referred to us, they've often been very discouraged with their experiences with military, medical, and mental health professionals just because of that inherent conflict in their role. So they feel relieved to talk with a professional who is only concerned about their own problems. And just to clarify, the researchers studied service members at home and overseas who got help from Civilian Medical Resources Network. Can you describe what that is, please? Sure. We're a network of volunteers in basically all parts of the country. And we've been doing this since 2005, although I and several others of us have done similar support work with military personnel previously actually going back to the Vietnam War. This recognizes that people who are active duty in the military often do not have access to the services that they actually need. So what we're doing is trying to provide free and voluntary services to people who don't have other options within the military. 
And I understand this civilian group provides second opinions, treatment, and letters that give information about diagnoses, treatments, and recommendations. So, Doctor, can you characterize, given what your study revealed, how important are these services? Well, we feel that they've been in many cases life-saving I don't want to over-dramatize the situation, but we actually do have a very disturbing public health epidemic going on now of suicide and other serious mental health disorders within the military. In particular, one active-duty GI kills himself or herself on the average every day. And among veterans, it's even worse. It's actually 20 veterans killing themselves every day. There are actually going to be more deaths from suicide in the current wars than from combat by far. So what we found is that people, when they're referred to us, and they're referred to us by the GI Rights Hotline, which is another organization of volunteers from faith-based organizations and peace organizations around the country, When we receive the referrals, the clients are often very discouraged. Actually, about half of the referrals involve clients who are actively suicidal or even homicidal. And they're so discouraged that they often can hardly speak. And as soon as they realize that there's a person on the other end of the phone whose only interest is in them, we experience them opening up and their depression and suicidality tends to decrease very quickly. So we've actually been very gratified. We've, to our knowledge, luckily not had any suicides in the 12 years we've been doing this, even though about half of our clients are suicidal when they arrive, and about 72% actually suffer from severe depression when we actually evaluate them. So we feel that our services are pretty helpful. We're speaking with Dr. Howard Waitskin, Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University of New Mexico, who coordinated a study on military members extensively using a civilian organization for medical care. And, Doctor, you've pointed out that some barriers to seeking care, at least within the military, include a negative impact on the service member's career, a stigma. How can the military address these problems? Well, we believe that based on our experience, both clinically and in our research, that first of all, the military has to recognize the inherent conflict and contradiction in the role of military health care professionals and mental health professionals. It's very difficult when those professionals serve two masters in the sense of both being there for the client but also for the command for there to be a situation of trust and confidence, especially when confidentiality isn't honored. So we believe, first of all, that people within the military should have the right to access civilian sector services that's not in the for-profit sector, that is in not-for-profit organizations so that, like managed care organizations, they don't benefit from restricting access to services. Doctor, what aspect of your study's results were the most surprising? 
We found that actually 93% of our clients experience the available services in the military as inadequate and inaccessible to meet their needs. So the vast majority of our clients are saying that they simply don't feel confident in the services that are accessible. We also found that for the clients who had experienced military trauma, the majority actually did not have trauma related to combat. They had non-combat related trauma, which usually had to do with harassment and military sexual trauma, not related to actual combat. We also found that 38% of the clients expressed distrust of their command. So that's a very substantial proportion feeling lack of confidence in the command in terms of trying to relate to their own mental health and physical health needs. We also found very high rates of mental health disorders when they're assessed through our diagnostic processes. That is 72% with major depression and about 60% with post-traumatic stress disorder, which are percentages that are much higher than have been found in other studies conducted within the military. Quite a bit of information there, and we appreciate your sharing it with us. Dr. Howard Waitskin, Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University of New Mexico. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. And a special thanks to our InfoTrax correspondents, Gina Tedasco and Ray Mackey. Also, thanks to Hollywood Mayor John Dunmire. And, of course, my friend Savannah J. from Star 99.7. Join us again next time for Living Local, a look at life in the low country. Opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect the thinking of this station, its staff or management, or our parent company, Saga Communications.